Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Welcome, everyone. It is Palm Sunday. What a great day it is to to look back in church history and on the calendar and and celebrate what has transpired. So if you have a Bible with you or you've got the Bible app, I'd encourage you to open up to uh, Matthew chapter 21 to start. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we're going to kind of be using as the framework uh, for a a certain bit of the sermon. What, What happens here is... Palm Sunday is, of course, most of us remember it is that day that Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, leading up to his death on the cross for the sin of all mankind, that this is the, the, the day where he enters into Jerusalem and is celebrated as he does so. And uh, we, we call it Palm Sunday because one of the Gospels tells us, uh, the Gospel of uh, John actually tells us that they, they, they pulled down palm leaves and, and put them down. Other Gospels just say they pulled uh, branches off the trees. And so we, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday as Jesus entering in, being recognized as, as the king that he is, and uh, celebrated for his role as the Messiah. So in Matthew chapter 21, we begin to see it unfolding. And uh, what happens is Jesus is, is getting close to Jerusalem. He's ready to enter in, and he sends his disciples ahead of himself. And here's what it says. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Uh, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. And what's interesting is most of you are familiar with the Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four Gospels all tell the story of Jesus and his ministry for us and to us. And yet they all tell them from a little bit of a different perspective. And we see Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to tell a, a story that is shaped very similarly because um, they, they maybe use some of the same historical background information, but all of them uh, experienced it or knew someone who experienced everything that happened. And then John has a completely different perspective on Jesus in, in many ways. And so some of the stories that John tells, the other three Gospels do not tell at all. And Matthew gives us this picture of Jesus riding or coming into Jerusalem, and he needs a ride. So he sends the disciples ahead and says, get me a donkey to ride on. But there's a specific donkey. I want you to go here. I want you to talk to this person. I want you to get a donkey. Now, the the different Gospels tell us some some things that maybe feel like contradictions, but they're not. Because the Gospel of Matthew says that you're going to find a donkey and the colt. The Gospel of Mark says you're going to find a colt upon which no one has ever sat, a colt of a donkey. Uh, The Gospel of Luke says you're going to find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Then the Gospel of John says, go and find a young donkey. Now, what we'd say, some some people, cynics might go, see, they can't even agree what he's riding that day. No, it's all the same thing. 
For a donkey to be out on the street and there to be a colt, it would not be uncommon for there to be a mother along with it. So Jesus is saying, you're going to find a mother and a young donkey, and I want them both. Bring them to me. But over the course of the story, the different writers focused on different aspects of that pair of animals. And so what we see is, regardless of, of what they focused on, both, all Gospels are very clear. Jesus sent his disciples ahead to get a young donkey, and one says, well, the mother was actually along with it. And then Jesus, he, he uh, ends up riding these donkeys into Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us there in, in chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, Matthew says, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. John says this about what is unfolding. He says, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That both of these writers acknowledged, why is Jesus calling for this donkey? Because when a, a king usually comes into a city, how does he come? Well, he doesn't come riding a donkey. A donkey actually in this day and age is a symbol for peace, is a symbol for uh, subtlety, for, for being someone who is uh, meek and mild. Normally a king, if they were going to be coming in and announcing themselves, they're going to be riding on like some great big white horse. You know, in, in our day and age, it's a big, big limo or the beast or, you know, something like that. We know that this is someone unique because of what they're riding in or on. Well, Jesus is following the prophecies that had been given in Isaiah and Zechariah and fulfilling them, not by riding in on a great big conquering white horse, but riding in on a symbol for peace and meekness and service. And so both Matthew and John tells us, this is why Jesus chose a donkey. And Matthew then uh, says, here's what happens with the disciples. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. So they made him a, a makeshift saddle by laying their extra cloaks or their, their clothing on to the donkey. And Jesus sits on the donkey and the colt, and he begins to ride them in to Jerusalem. We hear the same thing. We see the same thing if we look in Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, the, the very beginning of verse 14. We see this same story unfolds in all of the Gospels. Jesus sits on the donkey and he begins to ride into the city of Jerusalem. Matthew tells us this, a very large crowd, a very large crowd, spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. John tells us alone out of all the gospel writers that it were, they were palm branches that they took off the trees and put on the road in order to greet Jesus. Now, why would you do that? Well, it's, it's kind of the same uh, picture of, you guys remember, you know, movies and you've seen the whole idea of chivalry, right? Uh, there's a water puddle. What do you do with your jacket, guys? You're supposed to take it off and throw it over the water puddle so the lady may step on your jacket instead of stepping in the puddle. I'm not doing that with a good jacket, but, but this is a sign of respect, a sign of love, a sign of care. No, honey, I, you know I'd put whatever it took to get you over the puddle. Um, piggyback, even. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Anyway, nobody needs that picture in their mind. We're, we're done now. 
But, but it, it, it's the same thing. It is that taking things of value, taking things that are around and laying them down in order to protect the path, to, to set a path of, of honor for the one who's coming. And so that's what's going on. And, and this is what Palm Sunday is all about. It is that in this moment, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the people who are there recognize there is something special about him. They, they begin to recognize that this could be the Messiah. This could be the, the one that we've been looking for who will rescue us. This could be our coming king. And those of you who were with us through the whole study through the Old Testament, you know that the whole Old Testament has been setting the stage for this. The whole Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, has been telling us there is a man who will come who will conquer sin and death. And we know that, that he's going to be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, that he is going to be a king, he is going to be a prophet, he is going to be a priest, all wrapped up into one. We, we, we see in Scripture in the Old Testament, he'll be the son of God. And then we see those other testimonies of, of who he will be. He'll come riding into the city in peace on the back of a donkey. That's who your king will be. And so as the Palm Sunday is unfolding, this triumphal entry is unfolding, we see more and more that people are understanding, at least um, on a surface level, that Jesus is somebody special, somebody that they've been waiting for for generations. This could be the Messiah. Matthew says this, then, then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So we, we have what's going on is as people are coming into the city in front of and behind Jesus, the, the way this reads is that they're actually kind of singing back and forth, that they're shouting back and forth the, the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which was a common practice. Uh, in the past, as, as, as they would come into Jerusalem, they would sing this psalm, they would recite this psalm and celebrate the fact that God had saved them in the past and looking forward to the salvation that God would provide through the coming Messiah. And so as Jesus is coming in and they're, they're singing these songs, they realize they're singing these songs, these psalms, now not just in hope, but about the person who's right there in front of them. And it's this, this amazing picture. Can you imagine being in a crowd? And let's try something crazy. Let's do this. Uh, this side over here, let's see if you can do it. I want you guys to just shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. And when I mean shout, I mean like not Baptist shout, but like, like real Christians, shout it. Okay, and then over here, you guys, I want to challenge you. Can you do this to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And let's see if we can, if we can do this like, twice and i'll point to you when it's time for you to do it okay so so practice round first all right so hosanna to the son of oh that was it's up there on the screen hosanna to the son of david the very first time all right so ready one two three all right now let's see practice round for you guys can you do this blessed is he that was moderately convincing that you believed it on both sides. I'm impressed. Now let's see if this is, remember this is going on before and behind him. So you can imagine Jesus is riding on the donkey in the colt of a donkey. And there's a crowd in front of him shouting. And the crowd behind him responds with. 
can you, can you picture, I mean, get up out of your seats. I'm not telling you to do it, but can you imagine if you're up out of your seats and you're marching in and this is a celebration and just how amazing this moment is as people are celebrating Jesus. Now, the word Hosanna, what makes this even more exciting, the word Hosanna, do you know what it means? Lord, save us. And when, when this, this Lord, it's, it's God, save us. Blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118 that they're reciting. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. We're celebrating that God is here in our midst. His salvation is here. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is why Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, it's such a big deal on the Christian calendar because it is the day where Jesus receives the praise that he has deserved for 33 and a half years. Their mouths are opened up and they're speaking the truth and they barely even know it in the moment. They're so caught up in celebrating Jesus. Lord, save us. Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as we see this happening, all of a sudden, we, 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 we can just picture the disciples, the, the 12 who are walking with Jesus, and, and the, the, the small group of women that accompanied them. And John tells us this about the experience. He says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They're caught up in this moment, and they're just like, what is going on? I can, this is amazing. Finally, everybody sees Jesus the same way we do. But really, what, how, what? However, when Jesus was glorified after his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, they realized what happened that day fulfilled the promises that God had been making for generations. That the king had come, that, that he would provide a Messiah, a Savior, and that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy relating to that promise. Luke specifically says this, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, make your people be quiet. This is not right. You know why the Pharisees told Jesus this? Because they understood what the people meant and what God meant by what was going on in that moment. They were like, this, this, no, you're not the Messiah. You're not the one we've been waiting for. You're not the king. Get everybody to be quiet. And Jesus responds, I tell you, if they were, were to keep silent, the very stones would cry out. And, and, and what are the stones? Well, the stones, the, the, the most basic aspect of creation will sing the praise of the coming Messiah, Jesus says. And so, in this moment, we might think, well, nobody understood what was going on. These Pharisees understood exactly what was going on. They knew that the people saw Jesus for who he was in this moment. They knew that God's prophecies were being fulfilled. They knew what was being claimed by Jesus. And Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples and go, shh, you're right, never mind. But instead it is, hey guys, if they don't do it, the rocks will. Uh, this is right. This is how it is supposed to be. 
And so this is the beauty of, of Palm Sunday and this triumphal entry. And we, we, we watch it because we know that in it, Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's why he's writing in that day. It is part of him saying, I am the one you've been looking forward to, and I am fulfilling all the prophecies, and I'm here to save you. John writes about it in chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says this to the religious leaders. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Jesus says the whole of the Old Testament serves only to testify about him, and that he is the Messiah, that he is the one to come, that he is the one that is king and redeemer and restorer of all who would receive him. Now, it's interesting, we get to just a few days later, just a few days later, and if you're in Matthew, you can, you can follow along with the general storyline by turning over to chapter 26, and we'll look at verses 47 through 56. Now, you could also turn to any of the other of the Gospels and see the same story unfolding from differing perspectives with different information added in, but none of them contradictory. Just a few days later, after this glorious reception, what we find is the night before he was crucified, Jesus participated in the Last Supper with his disciples, something we're going to share in tonight for all who come to the Passover Seder dinner. And, and then after that, they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden where Jesus loved to go out and pray, and it is there that these things that transpire unfold on the night before he is crucified. Matthew tells us this, he says uh, that, that while they're out there in that garden, that Judas leads the, the religious leaders who want to crucify Jesus to the garden, and in that moment, as, as things are going down and Jesus is facing arrest by the religious leaders, here's what happens, at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword, he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Mark says the same thing. Luke says the same thing, essentially. Luke says, well, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And in other words, they, the disciples, as they're watching what's unfolding, they're beginning to say, hey, listen, you're king. Should we just kill everybody? Because, I mean, you're the king. This is how kings do it, right? One of them then takes out the sword and cuts off a servant's ear. John's the only one to tell us this, and I think John has it out for Peter sometimes. John says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. John gives us the detail that it was actually not just one of the disciples, but lo and behold, it's Peter. And if you've had any, any experience with Peter up to this point, we know that Peter is brash, and Peter will tell Jesus what he thinks, and Peter will step out into the, the water from the boat, and Peter here acts in the way that he thinks is right. What is his expectation of Jesus? That Jesus is a king like any other, and how is a king going to conquer? With the sword. If he's king, let's fight. If he's king, let's conquer. Uh, this dude doesn't need his ear. Let's, let's, you know, ears for Jesus. In this moment, Jesus' answer is this. 
put your sword back in its place. Because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Luke tells us Jesus said it this way, no more of this. Stop it. John, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. What are you thinking, Peter? Put your sword away. You know this isn't how it's going to go down. Mark tells us that at least three times Jesus has already predicted his death and that this will happen. And yet Peter still has in his mind that Jesus is king and we need to fight for him. He's going to be a king like all the others except maybe a little bit better. And, and, and Jesus says, this isn't the way that I will rule. This isn't how I am king. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? If this was going to be a violent political overthrow and I was going to fix things the way that you're expecting, don't you think I could do it without your silly little sword? You know who I am. You know the resources available to me. They've watched Jesus walk on water, quiet storms, raise the dead, feed thousands of people. And yet here Peter thinks that Jesus is a Messiah, a king that needs his sword. And Jesus says, if I was going to be a political leader, if I was going to be a king like that, I have all the power that I need to rule and to reign if it were to be like that. But that's not what Jesus came for. That is not the Messiah that he is. That is not the king that he is. In fact, Jesus was, was so concerned with making certain that he fulfilled the will of the Father as revealed in the Scriptures. Matthew tells us this, How then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Mark says that Jesus said it this way, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. John tells us Jesus expressed it this way, Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, stop it. That's not the way that God will save the world. He's already told us how it's going to happen, and we must follow the Father's plan. I'm going to be the Messiah, not that you want, but the Messiah that you've been promised and the one that you've been given. That night in the garden, Matthew and Mark both tell us this very clearly, while the others imply it. All the disciples deserted him and ran away. All the disciples left Jesus that night and ran away in fear. Now we see John engaging a little more readily. Peter ends up in the courtyard where Jesus is being judged. But we hear nothing else of the rest of the disciples until after all of this has unfolded. And why is that? Well, it's very easy to begin to think that the disciples, as they struggle with what's going on, is that Jesus wasn't even meeting their expectations for what the Messiah would be like. Wait, wait a minute. I thought you were going to be king. Wait a minute. I thought you were going to save us. I thought you were going to rescue us. And now, now you're arrested and, and on a fast track to death? How is this 
possible. We wanted you to be our king. We wanted you to be our Messiah. But they wanted him to be that on their terms, not his. Then we see finally the, the very morning of Jesus' crucifixion. That, that as he is before Pilate, as he is before the people, that they utterly reject him. Matthew 27, uh, at that last moment, Pilate is trying to decide what to do with Jesus. He brings him out before the Jewish people who are gathered together for the Passover season and festival. And it says this, that at the festival, that he, the governor would usually release to the crowd one prisoner, the one that they chose. Mark affirms that, so does John. And, and so he offers up Jesus or another prisoner whose name was Barabbas. Now, what kind of person is Barabbas? It's interesting. He was a notorious prisoner. Uh, one named Barabbas, Mark tells us, in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. What do we know about rebels? They were people who were trying to bring the kingdom of God to pass by violence. They were trying to restore God's kingdom with the sword. The night before, what did Jesus tell Peter to do with his sword? Put it away. It's not happening that way. It's not going to go the way you expect. Uh, Luke tells us Barabbas was in prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city for murder. John goes so far as to call him a revolutionary. Someone who thought that it was by the means of this world that hope and change would come. Interesting to see who Barabbas was. And so Pilate brings Barabbas and Jesus up and he says, who do you want? Jesus, you want me to release him to you? He's done nothing. Or Barabbas, who's a murderer and a rebel and a revolutionary. He's, he's the kind of person that, that is fighting for your freedom, but in a way that only brings shame and destruction. Matthew says that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. The chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas. They all cried out together, take this man away, and speaking of Jesus, release Barabbas to us. Don't go too close to the steps when you're watching the screen. You almost fall down and break something. John, they shouted, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. And so they cry out, and they want the revolutionary, not the king who came to save them. Pilate says, what should I do with Jesus? The one who's called Christ. That word Christ, what does it mean? Messiah, King. This Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, what am I supposed to do with him then? You want me to release to you someone who is trying to change the world according to your desires. What do I do with this man who wants to change the world through peace and sacrifice and giving of himself? And what's their answer? Crucify him. And they shout all the more, crucify him. Now we know this is God's plan. This is how our salvation comes. This is how Jesus is king. That his cross is his throne. That his crucifixion is his coronation. That his resurrection is his battle cry and his victory march. 
And so we rejoice in what transpires this day, but what we see here is that the people of that moment, they rejected the king that had come for them and because he wasn't the king that they wanted and he wouldn't bring for them the change they demanded. The king they wanted was a king who would be political and powerful and destroy the oppressors and make the whole world perfectly fair. But the king that they received was one who could actually save them from their most pressing issue, sin. John 1.11 says this about their rejection of Jesus. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came for them. Now you might think, Ooh, it's Palm Sunday. We won't have to hear about Colossians. Au contraire. Because this plays directly into one of the biggest lies that we can fall prey to and the vain philosophies of this world. You see, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ himself. And the problem with where we are at today, it's the same problem that we see in the transition from Palm Sunday to where the people were before Pilate. You see, Palm Sunday, it was King Jesus. And then on the day where Pilate offers Christ up, they say, he's not our king. We want the guy who'll do things our way. We want the guy who'll pursue our desires. We want the guy that is like us. Get rid of that king. He doesn't meet our desires. He isn't what we like. And and we've been fed this lie in our culture that Jesus can be something different for everyone according to your needs or your desires. That you you can be like the people in those days and simply say, that's not the way I want Jesus to be. Let me reshape Jesus into an image that pleases me. And yet in doing that, what we do is we choose Barabbas over the actual Savior every time. We, when we try and shape Jesus in our image to please us, we reject him as Messiah and instead choose a man that looks like us to use the means that we like to make us feel good or to to, to accomplish the things we want to accomplish It's a phrase that comes out something like this, and this is actually going to be a quote from somebody that you may like, but I'm struggling with. It says this, I'm a Jesus follower because he makes me. I'm a Jesus follower because he does something for me. He he makes me feel good. He makes me feel special. He, He does something for me. And it goes something like this. This is actually a quote from Andy Stanley as a pastor, North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and some of you might go, is that the son of Charles Stanley? That's your touchstone. Yes, it's the son of Charles Stanley. And he says this last Sunday from the pulpit. He's talking about if he's going to share his faith with somebody, he wants an elevator pitch for why they should be a Christian. Here's what he would say. The reason I'm a Jesus follower is honestly because following Jesus has made my life better. And it's made me better at life. So, of course... I love the church. But the church isn't just good for me, and the church isn't just good for you, and the church isn't just good for us. The church is good for the community. Now we look and we read this and we go, well, this sounds pretty good. We have to understand something about Anley Stanley. He's also become, in the last few months, very clearly gay-affirming. 
supportive of homosexual marriage, supportive of, of things that are clearly contrary to the word of God. And why is that? It's because when we read this, we can all of a sudden see his mindset has shifted from Jesus is my Savior who came to save me from sin to Jesus is the guy who came to make things better. And at the triumphal entry, everybody was saying, Jesus is coming, he's going to make things better. And then just a few days later, what are they saying about him? Crucify him because he didn't make things better the way we wanted it. He doesn't meet our expectations. He doesn't meet our standards. And here's what we struggle with in our culture. I'm a Jesus follower because he makes me better. Or he makes me wealthier. Or he makes me happier. Or he makes me healthier. Or he makes me blessed. Or any other list on here. Etc. Right? You could add anything on here that's not scripturally true. Now these can be effects of your walk with Jesus, but that's not why Jesus came. Look, at the triumphal entry, everybody thought that Jesus came to overthrow Rome, to put the kingdom of God back in place, and to make everything the way they wanted it. And just a few days later, they want him crucified, because they understood that's not what he came for. That's not the king he is. He is not a king who comes to fix things on your terms, according to your desires, according to your ways. But we must understand that he is the king who came to save us from sin. To treat our most basic oppression, the one that will take us straight to hell and an eternity of suffering. And that is our lostness from the Father. Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says this. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to make things better for good people. He came to save those who are evil and lost and sick with sin. And scripture tells us that's everybody. He didn't come to make life better and happier. He came to make us alive from death. Matthew 20, 18. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as the payment for sin for many. Why did Jesus come? To pay the price for sin. Now listen, when, when, when sin is washed away from our lives, when we begin to overcome sin through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within us, of course things get better. We have to understand, Jesus didn't come to make life better. He came to make us alive spiritually. And there's a big difference. Because if you're chasing after a Jesus made in your own liking, then you are chasing after a false Jesus and you are not saved. Luke says this, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Not make life better, not make us happy, not make us feel good about the things that we struggle with and, you know, affirm our identities, but to save us from sin, sin to bring us back to the Father. Now, what do we know, how do we know what sin is? We know what sin is because Scripture tells us what it is. Remember, we've talked about that all of the Old Testament and the standards that God has given His people in the Old Testament, Jesus reiterates in the New. 
Not specifically, but by saying one simple thing, that there's one great command, love the Lord your God with all that you are, and the second that's like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and the prophets are summed up in these two, or they hang upon these two. In other words, love God and love your neighbor yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the whole Old Testament is the standard by which we live. How do we know if we're sinning? If we violate those clear standards that God has given to us in the Old Testament. Who sins? Romans. What does it tell us? All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who needs to be saved? Everyone. Who's lost? Everyone apart from Christ Jesus. And if we come to a Jesus that is some other Jesus, a Jesus that is affirming of our sins, who, who says, everything's okay, I just want your life to be, be better, we're not coming to the real Jesus. We're coming to a Jesus of our own making who is more like Barabbas than the Christ of Scripture. And we see it even in, in, in what Jesus teaches us. A lot of us, we love John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? We've got it memorized. We've seen the guy at the football games who raises up the sign. We like to just say, well, that's a, that's, God just loves everybody. We, just, we even stop with the whole, watched a pastor, a, a video clip. He said, you just need to stop with the first six words. For God so loved the world. That's it. You just know that God loves. You need to understand something. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, that everyone who believes on him will be saved. But then it says this, that those who do not believe are already condemned. Yes, God loves you. Yes, he sent Jesus, if you will believe on him, to save you from sin and eternal death. But if you do not believe on Jesus Christ, and not a Jesus of your own making, but the Jesus of Scripture, the King who came to live and die and rise again on your behalf, if you do not believe in the Jesus of Scripture, you are already condemned before God. Already, you stand in a place where you are rebelling and deserving of eternal punishment if you have rejected Jesus as your Savior. So here's here's how I want you to to kind of change the perspective. Why are we a Jesus follower? Why do we follow after Jesus? Why do we declare his name? Why do we celebrate who he is? Not because he makes us better, not because he gives us nice things, but because he saves us from sin. He calls us his own. He makes us right with the Father. He makes us holy He he makes us disciples, followers. In him, we become not just creatures of God, but children of God. How amazing is this? This is what Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for. And when we have Palm Sunday, it's very easy to get caught up in, Jesus was a good guy. He wants us to have everything like the people of that day experienced and felt. But that's not it. He didn't come to conquer the world according to our standards and desires, but instead to save us from sin and to bring us to a place where we walk in holiness. And so the deception is that everybody can have their own little form of Jesus, and Jesus can look like them, talk like them, live like them, but that's not the real Jesus. Instead, we must follow after the genuine king. 
On the first Palm Sunday, many thought Jesus was the king they wanted, but they failed to understand that he was actually the king they needed. They thought he was the guy who was going to fulfill all their desires, but the truth is, he didn't come for any of their desires, but he came for all of their needs. And when he didn't fulfill their desires, they rejected him. They chose someone else. This Palm Sunday, I want you to think about your own life and your own walk. Many people think Jesus is the king they want, but they fail to believe on him as the king that they actually need. And what I mean by that, a lot of people see Jesus and see in him and rightfully so, love. And they see in him someone who, who walked with and ate with sinners, rightfully so, because he did. But they don't see Jesus as he says he really is. The one who came to free from sin, who came to make us right with God, who came to make us holy. And so this Palm Sunday, there are many people in this world who think they want Jesus, but they don't actually want him as he is. And the question for all of us is, is, are we like that? Because ultimately, if you don't receive Jesus as he is, but instead try and create him in an image that meets your desires, you are rejecting him. And by rejecting Jesus, what does John 3, 16 through 18 tells us? By rejecting him, we already stand condemned. We cannot make Jesus into what we want him to be. We must receive him as he says he is. And what is that? What is that? He's not here to meet your desires to make you happy or healthy or wealthy. He's here to save your soul from sin. And if you will not recognize what sin is and submit yourself to his kingship, you have rejected him. And you are in no way walking with him. 1 Timothy 1 15. I love this past, this verse. Uh, I don't know if it's in our memory verses eventually, but maybe for next year in the treasured memory verses. Do you realize if we do treasured memory verses like forever, we'll still never memorize it all, so we're going to keep on going. Um, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. That's That'll be like top of the list eventually. But 1 Timothy 1, 15. Here, uh, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of Acceptance by you know, most people who would agree. No, by a full acceptance. This is the answer. This is the truth. This is what Christianity is about. This is the gospel that we have. Christ Jesus came into the world to make us happy. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to make us better people. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to make us wealthy. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to make us a wonderful country where the flag will wave and we'll all put our hand over our heart and we'll always be a Christian nation. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. That's why he came. Now, are there, are there beautiful after effects of that salvation? Yes. Yes. There are. When we walk in obedience to the word of God through the power of Christ within us, it can be beautiful. And all of those things are added unto us. But if those are the things that you are following Jesus for, you've remade him into an image that pleases you, not into who he actually is. Why did he come? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it ends with this. And I... 
am the worst of them. I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, now that I know Jesus for who he really is and what he really came for, that there is no one who needs him more than me. And you might argue with me and say, you need him more. And I'll say, no, you don't know me. (laughs) You don't know what goes on inside of me. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst. And so today, I want to encourage you, yeah, throw your palms down, welcome him as king, but understand what that means. He did not come to make the world the way that you want it. He came to restore you and to remake you into what he has always created you to be child of God, free from sin, made to be whole, and walk in righteousness. Follow Jesus for who he is, not who you want him to be. That's the lesson of Palm Sunday. Many people that day celebrated Jesus for who they wanted him to be. And then when it came down to a decision moment, they could not follow him for who he really was. Today, Will you follow Jesus for who he really is? The king who came to save you from sin. Not some good guy to make you feel better. To save the country. None of those things really matter if you haven't come to know him as who he really is in the first place. So today, follow Jesus for who he is, not who you want him to be. And if you have questions, you want to talk about it, find somebody to talk about today, this Palm Sunday. Don't leave here today. Don't don't let this day end without talking about where you stand with Jesus and who you understand him to be if you've got questions right now. Chase it down. Become certain of your eternal destiny by having those questions answered by someone you trust with God's word. Shelly, Jay, if you guys would make your way up, we're going to close with one more song. Hosanna, Hosanna, come Lord, save us. But first, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that that we have this history that we can trust as we look back on on the the, the day that, that your son Jesus fulfilled prophecy and came riding into Jerusalem. And that that we can look back and know beyond a shadow of a doubt he was the king they were looking for. And so help us to receive him as he is, this king of peace, this king of restoration, this king who did not come to to make the world according to our desires, but to save us according to your perfect plan. And so today, may we have hearts that are steadfast. May we receive him as the king that he is and not become like the people who just a few days later, their hearts turned against him because he didn't meet their expectations. Help us not to be consumed with the the lies of this world and to think that your son should be meeting our needs according to our demands, but instead help us to understand he's met every genuine need according to your perfect plan. Lord Jesus, for the times that we have failed to follow you and to trust you, and instead have made you in our own image according to our own desires, please forgive us. Help us to see you fully. As we sang earlier, open the eyes of our heart so that we may genuinely see you for who you are, 
and then be inspired to follow you as you deserve. Thank you for this time together in this church. May we encourage each other toward holiness. May we encourage each other toward following you rightly. May we encourage and build up each other into making you genuinely the king of every aspect of our lives. For that is what you deserve. Thank you for coming, for living a perfect and sinless life, for dying on the cross, the spotless sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. Thank you that on the third day you rose again to prove it's all true. You really are who you say you are, and you can save us when we believe by faith. And thank you for saving us when we call upon your name as Lord and Savior. It's in your name we pray this morning.